Welcome to Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. I had the chance to speak with Mary Childs, the author of the new book, The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. Mary is co-host of NPR's Planet Money podcast. The Bond King in the title is Bill Gross. The tale is amazing, the characters can't be made up, and the book is beautifully written. I joked with Mary that the book could belong in the finance section, the business history section, or the psychology section of a bookstore. But first, I got a little of Mary's own history. I, I started out kind of thinking I would be a political, you know, a politics reporter, and I tried it and I was horrible at it. I could not understand how scoops happened. Like, it seemed like just a person would tell you a thought that they had, and that was a scoop if the person's important enough. So I just couldn't understand how you fact check that, how you, I just, it blew my mind. And in financial reporting, you have, you know, trades that you can look at. You have stock prices and, you know, lines that go up or down and they don't really not do what they're saying. You know, it's like a lot less confusing and a lot easier to fact check. So I found that I just understood everything better in financial markets. I felt more secure in my own ability to fact check things and not be led astray. And it's fun. You know, they're always, everybody's always inventing new stuff and it's complicated and it's fun to figure out and it can be kind of elegant and it can be kind of funny. I just really appreciate the kind of, um, the, the beauty of the structures in, in financial journalism. So, or in finance that I get to write about. So next I asked for a little background on the formation of PIMCO, the sale of which to Alliance made Bill Gross so wealthy. I want to start with the company's history inside Pacific life. It, it is an interesting story that I think actually got super compressed in the book, where over the course of like the 1980s, they spun out and spun out and spun out in tiny little increments. And it was very annoying to report because I was like, wait, so you spun out in 83, but then again, it like, wait, what? And I just, it was just very hard to understand that kind of incremental. And that's just like a, a tweak to the compensation structure. You know, all of these things are just like, it's weird how the closer you get to the details, the more formless it appears in a way where it's like, Okay, you're still part of Pack Life, but you're not really. But you're you're sort of not a standalone. But you have this profit sharing agreement, which you know. Anyway, so it it was this kind of constant renegotiation where Bill Podlick, the then CEO, and you know some of the uh, the other guys at Pimco, um, would go back to Pacific Mutual and be like, you know, then Pacific Mutual, and say, hey, we're generating all these profits. We're gonna we're gonna you know we need some kind of compensation for it, and kind of bang the table and try to give a little show. And they flirted with the idea of going elsewhere, but it didn't really take off. They they actually liked the structure, I think, at Pacific Mutual. Um, and Pacific Mutual, to their credit, they were like, okay, yeah, we want you to stick around. You're generating a lot of money. You're probably going to keep doing it. So these these structures kept getting kind of tweaked and tweaked as they demanded more and more um, kind of up the profits and, and more ownership of, of what they were doing. On to the psychology piece of the puzzle. Ever wonder if becoming rich and powerful makes people eccentric and petty, or are they always that way? Bill Gross was additionally complex because of this innate need to be famous, even more so than rich or powerful. Mary has known Bill Gross a long time and benefited from many candid interviews. It is an honest and well-researched portrayal, not often flattering. Here's a bit of her take on the person, Bill Gross, and his drive to be famous. I think, um, you know, it was there throughout his career. I think it, it stemmed back from his childhood is is what he would tell you, where he had, you know, cold Canadian parents who didn't hug him enough. And he felt, you know, he felt like he had this kind of chasm or this, this hole in his heart where, um, and I'm projecting a little bit, you know, he's never said hole in his heart, but he did say that he, you know, 
seemed to equate fame with love, that if he could be famous and be this big person on stage, that in some way, you know, he knew rationally this made no sense, but in emotionally, he seemed to seek out fame as a way, as a proxy for love. And I think you see that coming out in, you know, his pettiness. He, he had this kind of, I don't want to say at all costs, because that sort of belies his ability to weigh risk, right? But but to some extent, there is that disconnect between head and heart with Bill, um, as one of his former colleagues just put it to me. And I think that that's really true, where rationally he knows that this isn't going to help him, that, you know, whatever petty behavior he's about to undertake is not going to be good for him, is not what he actually wants, but he does it anyway. And I think, first of all, I find that so resonant because like, who among us? <laughs> like, I certainly have instances where I'm like, oh, you think, you know, you're going to like cut me in the grocery line or whatever extremely mundane thing. But it's not interesting or exciting when it's me, you know, because I'm not a billionaire. But if it's him, he has the means to kind of wage war against whoever has wronged him and and make it really miserable for them. So that, to your point, I think is like, that's to some extent a revealed preference. That's a, a, a difference between our means and our abilities where I'm not going to, you know, be able to exact a whole lot of revenge on my enemies. Right. <laughs> Like I might be like kind of rude, but that's pretty much the extent of it. And and Bill just has much, much more capacity and much more just so many resources at his disposal. So I think and to another point, too, is that there is a psychological change. And I'm not sure the extent to which this is true for Bill Gross. I certainly couldn't say. But for all, you know, the studies show that, you know, when you reach a certain level of wealth and, you know, power and whatever, that your brain does change, your decision-making changes, you become less empathetic. So it's possible that some of that comes to bear where he just, you know, after so long of being so rich and famous, the way you interact with people changes. I'm not sure how that shows up in his life, but um, but I do think that those underlying motivations were definitely there from the get-go. Got it. And maybe it's just one of those things where you're you have that re, um, recessed gene in you and then the opportunity <laughs> comes out and- right. uh, you exercise it. Yeah. Right. Like, am I going to be terrible to that person in the grocery store line when I'm a billionaire? Like, let's find out. Let's revisit. If you want to be famous, you get on TV as often as you can, which Gross certainly did. But you can also feed the beast through writing investment outlooks for public consumption and writing those outlooks in, well, memorable fashion. The style never appealed to me personally, but if a strange parable led to the Bond King's actual take on markets, Wall Street was anxious to read them. I think that's I think that's right. Like he he was waiting. He did have the impression that everyone was waiting to hear from him. But I should note that it was true, that that's true and accurate. People were hanging on these monthly outlooks. You know, they they were read across the street. And like to some extent, of course, I'm biased. I, I you know, stay in the credit world. That's like the space that I grew up in, you know, as a as a journalist. And it's kind of a space that I like to stay in just because I love it and find it interesting. But so, so of course there's some bias there where like, I'm like, everybody's reading it. It's like, okay, my, you know, bond people are reading it for sure. But <laughs> I do think, I think it crossed over into other asset classes. And I do think that it was part of his celebrity. I think that it helped to build this, you know, these, these bizarro anecdotes that were, you know, confessional and everything that's ever happened to Bill Gross. You know, you, you can really paint a good mosaic of his life just from his own writing, um, which was a boon to me, right? Like as a as right. a person writing a book about this guy, I had so much to mine, so much kind of personal content, which was very helpful from him. But it also, you know, I don't think everybody was doing that when he started out. I know, and I don't think people really do it today, even where they, you know, he had this position of influence in the market, but he also was basically like client, like retail focused, like mainstream focused with this investment outlook 
output where people could turn to him and say, oh my gosh, well, this genius Bill Gross guy, he thinks that interest rates are doing this or that. And I think that that was a big part, you know, the the weird anecdotes get you in the door and now you're reading and then you're going to hear about his, you know, interest rate call. And I think that that was actually quite sticky. I think people really liked those and it helped to build and cultivate and retain this kind of fan base that also translated to an investor base, you know? Another titan of industry in the story, Mohammed El-Aryan. It's hard to pin him down. Bill Gross shares his thoughts and Mary helps us try and decipher a complex individual and his complex relationship with PIMCO, Bill Gross, and Wall Street. You're right of Gross's view. He saw only El-Aryan's hollow insistence on FaceTime in the office, his breezy economic doublespeak, words that slip through your hands like rushing water, how he managed to talk so much without saying anything. Is, is there anything to that view, in your opinion? Oh, gosh, that's a tough question. I, sometimes I think Mohamed Elarian might be talking over my head, you know, like maybe he's hitting on some macroeconomic theory that I haven't gone to grad school to understand. But at the same time, there are moments where he kind of he does have a gift for clearly stating like consensus, like what the the macro vibe is. And and I think that that is really annoying for Bill Gross. You know, I don't really I don't have any skin in the game here, so it's not annoying for me. But I do think that like if you're saying, oh, you know, the economy is coming to a T-junction, it could go one way or it could go the other way. Bill Gross is going to be like, what? You, you talked about the communication to their investors being bond investors versus the stock market. Bill Gross for years felt the need to pontificate about the stock market, something that Gunlick does today. In fact, there was a ominous headline this morning with his picture on the front saying calamity may be coming. Um, is it, it simply, be. yeah, I know it is it's always around the corner, but it, is it a transparent attempt to kind of talk their, their book, talk up bonds as superior alternatives to stocks, or is there another motive, another, just, you know, in, enjoying the attention and being read just like, you know, Elon Musk tweets all day. Um, what, why are those guys always talking about the stock market? <laughs> I think it is a good way to build your base. You know, I think it is, it does seem to be more effective and more like retail investors invest so much less in bonds and certainly don't day trade them really, you know? So I right. think that's a big difference where if I'm day trading in the stock market and I see this guy on CNBC saying stuff that's relevant to me, I'm going to be so much more interested than if he's like, oh, I think the yield on the 30-year bund, I'm, I'm out. I'm That's not going to help me at all. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that that's, that's definitely a part of it is, is the ability to appeal to retail investors and people who are, you know, thinking about what to do with their money, but also want someone to listen to. And it has this kind of not that that marketing benefit really does end up having a business building effect. Bill Gross and PIMCO were behind some of the biggest trades in fixed income for decades, all covered in the book. Nothing drew my attention more, in part because I remember it happening and being stunned at the time by its unfolding, than the Fannie Mae trade during the Great Financial Crisis, which paid off when the federal government made what was to many an implicit guarantee explicit. Now, more than entities being bailed out, bond investors were receiving what was to some, like Bill Ackman of Gotham Partners, an economically indefensible 100 cents on the dollar. I have such a hard time parsing like when you're talking your book and when you're not like you're talking your book because it's your book and you believe in it. So you're not just there's always kind of an interaction there between what you actually believe and what you're just trying to say to make money. Those things are oftentimes the same. Like there's a lot of overlap between those things. So okay. that's a little confusing to me. First of all, just something I observe a lot and something I think about a lot. But 
in this case, you know, Bill Gross and PIMCO were truly at the epicenter of the mortgage market and had been for so long. And this crisis emanated from the mortgage market. So more than anyone, I think they were equipped to see what was happening, equipped to understand it and equipped to understand what had to happen next. So and, and you know, they were so influential, too, in the market that I think when the U.S. government was looking around trying to figure out what to do and Bill Gross and PIMCO are out there saying, hey, you're going to have to go ahead and make that promise explicit. You're going to have to go ahead and back Fannie and Freddie. You know, they they guaranteed directly or indirectly some five trillion dollars of of mortgage debt at that yeah. time. And that's a boatload, especially when so much of that is, is about to be written down substantially underwater. or has to be right. Yeah. Exactly. So underwater. So I think that's the you know, there's this weird interplay between the government and and PIMCO and these enormous bond managers where. The government more or less has to listen to them and has to say, OK, if they're, you know, if Fannie and Freddie have to roll new to new debt, if they have to finance themselves in the in the market where PIMCO is an enormous player and buyer, are they going to not listen? Are they going to just not like they really are are in a position where they have to to kind of at least take into very, very good consideration what PIMCO has to say. So in this instance, you know, to me, this is the moment where PIMCO is at the kind of height of their power, where the government's trying to figure out what to do. And Bill Gross and PIMCO, others at PIMCO are very public saying, you're going to have to make this explicit. You have to back Fannie and Freddie. And then they do it. And it was an enormous day for PIMCO total return. I think the best day the fund had ever had to that point. This deal and others accounted for in the book seem to be transactions that regulations would have prevented from happening in the equity markets if there could be an equivalent kind of trade. Insider trading laws are different for the bond market. And what do you do when you are the bond market? It's my sense, and I'm not a regulator, but it's my sense that the the regulations are pretty ill-fitting and that, you know, there's this they're kind of behind the curve on in in the bond market trying to figure out how to regulate it and that the regulations they do have just don't sit that well on the actual actions. You know, there's just a mismatch between how people behave and how things actually interact. So with the and how they and how they try to regulate things. And part of that is just that's life, you know, like it's always going to be a little gnarly and hairier in real life than than it actually should be in this beautiful theoretical land of regulatory. And you have to kind of ascribe intent at some time. Anyway, so I do think there's some structural like natural uh, tension there. But also, I don't know, I just I think for a long time, they weren't as focused on it. And they weren't chasing it as hard. And and you see that where they're just kind of trying to play catch up and asking questions about, hey, is this how you value this security? Hey, um, and then how does this one trade? And it's kind of basic stuff, you know, according to my sources who um, can be a little condescending sometimes <laughs> so to take with salt, but yeah. you know, like that's a little, and, and you see that with, okay. I also covered earlier in my career, like the London whale. And there was oh, this wow. moment where, yeah, it was so fun where, you know, he was within the, he was marking things within the bid ask, but maybe a little bit on one side. And it, there was this confusion over a week. Can you get in trouble if you're still within the bid ask? Like, <laughs> like, is that, is that not okay? If I went in the bid ask spread, I should be fine. Like that's literally the like lanes of where I can play, right? But there's this this kind of contradiction. And like the odd lots thing that you referenced that Pimco did. Yeah. It was this um basically in in super simple terms, buying these kind of like decayed, gnarly little bundles of securities and plopping them into a pricing mechanism that didn't account for the gnarliness and the fact that they were underloved in the market as a result of that kind of, you know, decay and gnarliness. And they would get marked up to the whole lot price, to the price for the like 
beautiful 100% of all the securities are still there, not, you know, 54% or whatever it may be. And, you know, these things that there's an, an obvious price difference because they're, you know, maybe there are less fewer securities that are going to contribute to a revenue stream, but also people don't feel like dealing with these things. So they traded a discount, discount. to even that. Yeah. So, you know, that wasn't really like, is that illegal? It's not their fault that the pricing system, you know, marks these a little bit wrong. Did they take full advantage of that? Yeah, it does look that way, doesn't it? Yeah. And that is indeed the conclusion that the SEC came to. But oh, it is. Yeah. So it's one of those moments where you're like, when that story came out, I remember everyone being like, oh, my God, wait, what does that mean for my odd lots? Am I not allowed to buy odd lots now if they get rounded up? And the answer is like, no, you can if you're not trying to base an investment strategy and like kind of boost your the, the, the you know, performance, the, the look of your performance by using these by over reliance on these things. So there's a lot of nuance there that I think is impossible to codify and really truly write out into whatever rule where you can't just be like, well, it depends on what you meant when you said it. Right. Right. And I think that that can be hard to do. And there's a lot, you know, you asked about the the kind of insider trading e things in the bond market. And there's a lot of material, non-public information. Or, you know, I think that there's a lot of weirdness in distressed debt land where your own actions can become influential in the company. You know, your plan leaks out and that's non-public information that can affect the, the trajectory and the, you know, the price of the company's securities. Or, you know, you meet with the CFO who's telling you the basically the debt schedule, the funding schedule that the company will have. And that's normal and fine. That's not a problem, but it is kind of, you know, a look that other people might not get that I'm certainly not getting, you know, in my home office. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not yet, you know, but also I think you, there are completely acceptable ways like anchoring new issues in the bond market where, you know, when a new company debenture is coming out and people underwriters want to find somebody to buy a huge slug of that debt so that everybody else wants to buy it, they call PIMCO. They call PIMCO and they call BlackRock. And those new issues way, 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 way more often than not pop as soon as they're issued. So you're going to almost get a guaranteed little return just by virtue of being big and being the first port of call. Next, Barry summarizes some relevant SEC regulations surrounding cross-trading between related funds and PIMCO's use of the practice. 17A7s come up a lot in the book. How, how were they uh, using them? And as, as time has passed, has that passed buster in hindsight? 17A7 is an exemption in the 40 Act that basically allows you to trade within funds between, you know, if, if they're all kind of under the same umbrella and the same fund family. And that means, you know, if I'm running a fund and it's, you know, the, the really nice money fund and I get hit with a ton of redemption requests, but I like all the bonds that I hold. I really want to raise cash, but I don't want to necessarily get rid of those bonds. They're good bonds. I bought them on purpose. I picked them. Right. And there's a world in which I can sell it to my neighbor over here in the same fund family to, you know, Bill Gross or to Dan Ivins or to whomever, because they're good bonds and we want to keep them. I'm going to keep them in house and I don't feel like releasing them back into the street for no reason. You know, the, the, my redemption requests are totally random and have nothing to do with like, you know, the beautiful bonds that I have in my portfolio. So I can save those bonds and raise cash by selling them to my compatriot over here and, you know, not have to take them to the open market and get dinged and have people front run me and give me, you know, bad prices for no reason. So it kind of helps to buffer, I think, this kind of um, this potential deleterious effect of redemption requests. And, you know, I think that's that's a little controversial because the way that I put it is not how they want to think of it. But I do think that PIMCO 1787 more liberally than their peers. And I, I think that that's, you know, from who, everyone that I've talked to in the market within PIMCO and without, 
they're like, oh yeah, no, like the way Pimco uses it is, is way more liberal, way more enthusiastic mm. than, and there are other firms that are like, oh, we excuse you. We don't do that. You know, like yeah, give me yeah. this look. Like I just asked if they like do murder on the weekends. They're just like, why would you even <laughs> suggest this? So there's, and, and I don't know, you know, the, the SEC, I think regulators were looking at this more recently. So I'm sure there's been some kind of, you know, polishing and scrubbing going on. Um, cause there were, you know, letters about how this is, know, very important for us to be able to function. And, you know, I think they do use it for, you know, not only for uh, not having a fire sale if they don't want to, but also, or, or at least buffering the impact of that fire sale, whatever selling needs to happen, but also, you know, flipping stuff into new funds, right? Transferring securities into a new fund that's just launched or shuffling. The, there are reasons why you would want to shuffle things around that are not just because, oh, this, you know, enormous redemption request has come in and we need to figure out what to do. The story starts to wind down coincident with Gross's career and his departure from Pimco, the firm that made him rich and that he made famous. Well, we'll end up back at the uh, business history section of the store. I had no idea Gross had entertained a move to double line upon leaving Pimco oh, before yeah. deciding on Janus. What, what was the deciding factor in his choosing Janus, an equity shop, over, over double line, if you know it? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of things um, at play here where Jeffrey Gunlock is obviously this enormous personality, this enormous celebrity in the bond market, too, and has to some extent, you know, taken the bond king crown, though he says he doesn't, you know, want that title <laughs> at all. Right. And that structurally, you can imagine just knowing only those things would create a really awkward situation if Bill Gross were to come work at Double Line. Like you can just imagine those enormous personalities not getting along. And Bill had just had this experience. He was in the thick of this experience at, in 2014 where he's being kind of bonked around and, and people are, are not respecting him enough and not like supporting him in the public eye and not doing all of these. Th and you can only imagine that going from a, a place where he has been king for so long and has been the boss to a place where he's not even the main guy, like that's not going to cure the problems that he has. That's not going to fix anything. But he remembered, you know, he talked to Dick Wilde that summer or earlier in the year when he, uh, when things were getting a little weird at PIMCO and he just wanted to have a backup. And Dick Weil had worked at PIMCO for many years. He was, you know, this very polished executive. He was the COO. He worked closely with the CEO. And, you know, people didn't necessarily think that Bill Gross and Dick Weil got along by any stretch. People kind of thought that Bill was a little mean to Dick. But when Dick Weil was running Janice, you know, the no hard feelings. Bill Gross just gave him a call and was like, would you have room? You know, is is there a spot for me? And of course, Dick is like, this is an enormous opportunity for us. Yes, of course, we have a spot for you, Bill Gross. And I think it did what, what he wanted, really, is it brought all this attention to Janice. It brought money in and it made, it, you know, put them in the headlines. He told me once that it was, they were, um, that Bill Gross was their Peyton Manning, uh, a game-changing level of talent for them. And I mean, I think that, you know, he is a celebrity and, and people really care. So I think to some extent, it just was a, a, a good match where it achieved some of Dick Wiles' goals and it definitely achieved some of Bill's goals because he just wanted a fund and he wanted to be able to keep keep trading in the market and it allowed him to do that. Bill Gross's personal story drifts from bizarre to sad at the end of the book, uh, especially in his public interactions with his son and his ex-wife Sue. His role in that divorce, reading like a retreating army, leaving devastation in its wake. Mary, besides nonstop interviews for this book, where else can listeners find you in your work? I am at Planet Money. I'm a co-host um, and we are, you know, a twice weekly podcast on NPR and I'm on Twitter at MDC and, you know, LinkedIn and Instagram and all that. 
The Bond King. Bill Gross invented the bond trading market, and PIMCO would make legendary contributions to the investing lexicon, like the new normal and the shadow banking system. But the journey from dead cats to dancing was anything but smooth. The book is a hole in one, Mary, and I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you so much. That means so much to me. This was really fun.